Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of conversations about law practice. Each week, we talk with legal entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are your hosts. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 225 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking with David Colarusso about Chesterton's fence and the importance of humility when attempting to solve legal problems with technology or anything else. Today's podcast is brought to you by Arag, Ruby Receptionists, and Text Expander. We wouldn't be able to do this show without their support, so stay tuned. We'll tell you more about them later on. Before recording this intro, I tried to place a wager on what the odds were that I would pronounce Chesterton's fence correctly on the first <laughs> You take, did great. And now I've done it twice. <laughs> I know, three times it's even. Amazing. Yeah, that's Lucky amazing. me. So a couple of episodes, we had Allison Shields on 200 episodes after her first appearance. Yep. And David Colarusso is now appearing exactly 205 episodes after his first appearance. So that's the buffer. Like, if you want to come back, it's 200 episodes. Uh, apparently. Yeah. Maybe nice. not. <laughs> That feels excessive. <laughs> I thought it would be fun to take a few minutes this morning and chat about threat modeling. Oh, threat modeling. I love this because it's the it depends answer to the question of what level of security do I need that lawyers hate. Plus, it allows us to talk about hackers. Yeah. And terrorists and whatever, which is always fun. Absolutely. So here's the thing about threat modeling and what it is. Threat modeling is a framework to help you think about the answer to the question, how much tech security do I need to be doing? Right. I mean, so we talked, I think, two episodes ago about data security needs generally and some of our default best practices law firms can use to make sure that they are protecting their law firm and client data in an appropriately confidential way. And there are some kind of generic best practices there. Mm -hmm. But generic obviously only applies as a default standard, but not a specific standard to you. And the importance is in being competent with protecting your client's data is understanding what specific threats might actually apply to your firm and your clients' issues. And for some firms, the default standard potentially might even be more sophisticated than the actual threats that that firm faces. But for some firms, particularly those that deal with a lot of financial data or personally identifiable information or have opposing parties who might know a lot about your client, like in divorce matters, or if you're dealing with really sophisticated criminal matters or international business, like there are any number of there's so many case, variables, case types or yeah. practice areas where a really sophisticated understanding of who might want to try to destroy this data, capture this data, steal and share this data, or how they might do it. Like these are things that all firms need to at least spend a little bit of time thinking through so that if those risks ever become realized, that you've made sure that you're protecting yourself as best you can. And one of the places I like to start with on this, because I like to help lawyers understand that a threat model is not just security hacker geek stuff, is I like to start by talking about the paper on your desk, right? And the lock on your front door. What are the risks to somebody reading confidential client information that you might leave out on your desk in the evening? Well, anybody who wanders into your office, anybody with a key to your office, anybody who, if the front door is unlocked, anybody who's passing by and gets curious, 
right? Like that's a starting point for one piece of your threat model. So another piece of it is obviously going to be your email and your file server and things like that. But you need to be thinking holistically about, you know, what are the specific characteristics about your law practice and how you store information and where and how you secure it? And then how can you actually take the necessary steps, the reasonable necessary steps to make sure everything is secure? Yeah. And so at its most basic, this kind of threat model analysis dovetails a lot with understanding basic data security and with protecting your files from destruction too. Part of your threat model is like, if my office burned down, then what? And some of these are risks that have a low likelihood of occurring, but would have tremendous harm if they did. And others have a really high likelihood of occurring, but maybe less harm if they mm -hmm. did. You're sort of doing the, uh, the calculus of risk for data security edition. Yeah. And like, unless you are a very interesting boutique firm in the news for representing international terrorists, or you represent some sort of IP holder in a Chinese espionage case or something, <laughs> this doesn't have to be an extended analysis that you're investing consultants and time and money into, you but you need, you need to spend some time thinking about it. So we've got a worksheet to help you think through your threat model, and you can find it in our insider library. We also have uh, the security download, the white paper that we talked about before, the four-step security upgrade, which will walk you through four things that we think are really easy and simple that everyone should do, no matter what your threat model looks like. And if you want a more holistic view of how your law firm stands, both technologically and otherwise, then you should use the small firm scorecard. You can find the link on the front page of Lawyerist or go to lawyerist.com slash scorecard and evaluate your firm on your own scale on threat modeling and a number of other factors about business health, technology, savviness, financial health, all the kinds of things. And with that, here's my conversation with David, and we'll explain what Chesterton's fence is and go into some detail around some of the implications of it. You pronounced it right the first time too. I know, <laughs> we're so good. Hi, I'm David Calarusso. I'm a practitioner and a resident and the director of the Legal Information and Technology Lab at Suffolk University Law School. And I'm looking forward to talking all things tech and legal. Hey, David. Welcome to the podcast. So you are currently the practitioner in residence, which I understand is not actually a professor. But we've had you before as a public defender, and before that you were, I think, a science teacher. Is that right? Yep. And I had a small software company on the side, and that probably rounds out all the things for which I've had to pay taxes on. <laughs> that sounds about right. I mean, you've also built some software. You've got some open source projects. You're kind of uh, all over the place, I guess. Not in a bad way, but in a good way. Yeah, I haven't haven't had much chance to work on my woodworking, though, lately, so that's a, a little sad. <laughs> Well, let's talk about your work at Suffolk University. So what is the Legal Innovation and Technology Lab? It's a great excuse for me to use the initials LIT. Yep. So of all things that it is, it is definitely lit. <laughs> but the Legal Information and Technology Lab, we have our one of our joint program of our clinical programs at the law school and our legal information and technology concentration. And we basically operate as a consultancy inside the law school, um, providing data science and legal tech consulting to external and internal clients. So that could be governments, nonprofits, sometimes small firms, Palace Law, which I know your listeners know we've, yeah. we've worked with them on some stuff. And then we also have, uh, we also work with internal clients. So we have students that are in our clinics who are normal clinical students with a reduced caseload. And they actually will work basically as part of the consultancy, but working for the clinics as their clients. 
to sort of internal uh, innovation folks in our clinical programs. Huh. So is the goal to make money for Suffolk or to what, what's the reason for, especially with the external stuff, doing that external work? So it's really the same goal as clinical programs. It's experiential education. So it's the understanding that you never really learn something as well as when you're doing it. And so what we end up having students do is work as part of teams identifying issues and finding technical solutions for those issues when appropriate. Um, sometimes those solutions might, however, be um, less technical than some people might suppose. It might just be process improvement. Um, but really, it's about finding the right tools to solve a problem. And then also, um, in addition to our sort of quasi-consulting work, which most of it is uh, at no cost because we tend to work with governments and nonprofits in that matter, we also uh, have a, a class that goes along with the lab that I teach called Coding the Law, and that helps to acquaint students with the actual ins and outs of the technology and actually have them get their hands dirty and actually build some stuff. And there the idea is that you never really understand something um, until you can create it yourself. And so it's to gain them an understanding that they can use to go out into the world in their practice and help understand, you know, when someone's saying uh, something about technology, whether or not it be someone trying to sell them something for their practice or someone saying something as it affects an issue that they're dealing with for a client that they're going to be able to know whether or not that person's, you know, actually telling them uh, how things go or if they're just trying to sell them some BS. You and I were chatting with someone whose name escapes me at the moment from Harvard's Legal Innovation Lab or whatever they call it, the Library Innovation. Yeah, Adam thing, Ziegler. Anyway. Yeah, Will. Yes, Adam Ziegler. And, yeah. and we were talking about, he, he kind of pitched the idea that a lawyer who has a background in technology such as they can learn at Suffolk is really a, a lawyer of a higher skill level. Um, because you have new, more robust tools in your toolbox for bringing to law practice problems, not not necessarily just business problems, although those too. But you know, let's say you get a crazy batch of discovery. Maybe if you understand how to work with large volumes of data and information, you have a different skill set for analyzing that than a lawyer who might not have those skills. Yeah, and that's I mean, so actually, uh, that's one of um, Adam's colleagues. That was probably a conversation with Jack Cashman. Uh, oh, yeah. who yep. is one of the, Adam's colleagues. Uh, he teaches a, a similar class where they teach coding to lawyers as well, and that's the entire premise. Actually, there's a, there's a handful, maybe not quite two dozen classes in the U.S. where people are teaching coding to attorneys uh, in law school, um, and they sort of have a range of different focuses. And actually, Jack and mine are probably two of the ones that are closest to each other, and that we're looking at using technology as a tool to help filter students' understanding of uh, their legal practice. Um, some people are just looking at it as we, we'll just provide you with these skills and you know, we're teaching you a class as we teach anyone a, a coding class absent that context. Um, but I know one of the things that I tend to, and then some are doing it sort of on the very theoretical side, they're looking at, you know, what are the consequences of technology uh, legally? So what do we need to know about you know, uh, machine bias and other issues that might come up through the use of technology? And what we're trying to do is actually say, well, the, the, the way to really understand those issues is to understand how things work. So we're going to give you a foundation and have you get your hands dirty and then also talk about these things. So, for example, we have as one of our required readings in my course, Kathy O'Neill's Weapons of Math Destruction, um, which is an exploration of how algorithms uh, can get misused in society and the consequences of not actually understanding, you know, what it is that's behind that black box. I, you've just teed up the pivot perfectly, which is the reason you and I decided we wanted to do a podcast was to talk about Chesterton's fence. And we can get to that in a minute, but I just want to set this up where one of the things we keep seeing 
it seems like, is people who are trying to whether they're trying to innovate around the legal industry, from the legal industry, within it, whatever, or they're trying to disrupt it, whatever it is, there's a lot of sort of banging heads together when, you know, I'm thinking of, for example, the Do Not Pay app or a number of the the things that I've seen at hackathons for law students or, or whatever. And often what it seems like is there's a disconnect between the actual problem that they're trying to solve and their understanding of the problem. And so they end up building a solution that is actually solved solving a problem that's already been solved or that isn't an actual problem that needs solving. And so as a result, nothing really happens with it. Like you get a lot of noise about how great this thing is or how much it can do. And then and then there's a lot of sound and fury signifying nothing, it seems like. Um, or you get something like, you know, let's say Bird and Lime, where they're sort of following in the footsteps of Uber and Lyft, but you drop a solution into a market without really considering the legal problem. And all of a sudden your biggest problem is your legal problems because you didn't really account for them. So tell us about Chesterton's Fence. Yeah, so Chesterton's fence, so it's, it's interesting. So it's often people, if they know it, they know it from a quotation from, I think Bartlett's quotation has Kennedy citing, uh, John Kennedy citing it as Chesterton. And his encapsulation was, don't ever take down a fence until you know the reason why it was put up. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chesterton's uh, statement is Which a is little... about half of it, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And Chesterton's statement is a little more complicated than that. So it's sort of interesting, like historic history, because it's John F. Kennedy uh, refracting Francis Chesterton's comment from one of his apologetics on Catholicism in the you know early part of the uh, 20th century, um, and and there basically he was talking about reformers and social reformers and saying basically if someone comes and says I want to blow up the system because I don't see any point to why it's this way, then he's going to say no, don't I'm not going to let you blow up the system except here he's talking about take down the fence. Uh, when you come back and you tell me, oh, now I see why that fence is there, then maybe I'll let you take it down. Um, the point being is that you should be humble about the notion that maybe some of the things that you don't understand uh, why they're there are there for a reason. And that it's worth understanding that before you go tearing things down. I mean, I, I think about that in the sense of the legal system. Like, it's really easy to listen to a lot of criminal true crime podcasts yeah. and say, you know, our legal system's broken, which is true, but it's not broken in the ways that m- many people think it's broke. It's not broken because it produces bad outcomes. The bad outcomes are a result of the way it, it might be broken, but it's it's like you're, you're missing so much by just saying it's broken. There are good reasons why it is the way it is, and there are some reasons that maybe it should be changed, um, but you can't start to address those until you actually have taken it apart and understood it. Yeah, I think that, well, the rules of evidence, right, are, are probably the place where most people sort of run into this because... yeah. You know, they, they say, well, why, nuts. you know, you, <laughs> from the outside, view, they're nuts. <laughs> from the outside, you know, you get a, a trial going up in the court of public opinion and everything is, you know, fair game. You get hearsay, you get all the speculation. And then you wonder, how is it that a jury came to a certain decision? And you recognize, well, they only saw part of the evidence. And some people say, well, what? That's, that's silly. Why didn't they see everything? But it turns out there are really good reasons mm-hmm. why they didn't see everything, because we don't trust the process if certain things can get in that might have an undue effect on people's thinking. Um, and so, you know, it turns out that, you know, working fast and breaking things only works as a strategy when the things you break aren't really that important. And so that you really have to think proportionally to, you know, if I break this thing, what's the worst that could happen? Um, and like, I, uh, you know, this is the model that is adopted in software development and put out a minimum viable product. And Nicole Braddock talks about this a lot. You know, the idea that you can put out a minimum viable product for legal well, you got to understand what is really that minimum viable product for legal because you can't just say, oh, 
well, this didn't work out for you, so um, I'm sorry. Um, you have to make sure that it actually is. It's you know, it's like minimum viable product for an airplane. You want the airplane to fly, right? It's, it doesn't. It's, it's no good for you if if you kill half your users. Yeah, you can't A B test within the legal industry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Well, like, you, I mean, it, it's pretty hard to say to people, okay, so we're going to test these different evidentiary rules in different courtrooms and and see if we think the results are good, are better in one than the other. I mean, how do, you can't redo the whole trials for the, the B test if it doesn't win or something. It's harder. It's, it's not that it isn't already broken and doesn't need work. It's just that it's way more complicated than people who are trying to unbreak it are trying to think through it in many cases. Yeah, I think that, and I would, I would push back a little bit on saying you can't A-B testing law because I think one mm. of the things that's missing is a real sort of randomized controlled trials sure. in law. So the, the Access okay. to Justice Lab across the river at Harvard, that's their big thing. They want to say set up real randomized controlled trials on things and see, you know, what actually works, not just figure this all out by gut. And people say, well, you can't do that ethically. Well, except this is done all the time in the in the medical profession where it's people's lives on the line. And that's often it's often people's lives and their liberty interests on the line in courts too. So I don't think that uh, those are sort of out of sync. And obviously they found ways to do that ethically and responsibly because they realized that real the knowledge you gain from real randomized controlled trials actually is very useful to knowing whether or not this thing you think is working is working because sometimes the thing you think is working is not. Well, um, I so yeah, so I just push back. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, I guess that makes a ton of sense. So yeah, my point is it's, it's just more complicated. Yeah. It, it is just more complicated, but the alternative of it's complicated and throw up your hands and do nothing also doesn't, I mean, that that's not good either. So, yeah, I think that's, that's, you know, well, that's the easy way out, right? Because you don't have to think about what's hard or, or try to improve upon things. Uh, that's, you know, sort of a very diffused attitude that I, I think that one of the reasons I'm drawn to sort of innovation and uh, its use in, in law is the possibility to make things better. Right. Right. And, you know, there's a very uh, clear point that, you know, the, the lit lab, it's the legal innovation and technology lab, not just the technology lab. So the idea is, you know, how do we actually make changes that are going to improve things? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really what we're all about. And you have to know why things are the way they are before you actually can do that. Hence, Chesterton's Fence. There we go. We, we tied it all together. There we go. So we've teed up Chesterton's Fence, and now we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to follow it down the path through some of the consequences that may or may not be meaningful within law and within some related subjects. So we'll be back in a minute. With Text Expander, you don't have to waste time retyping things you've already worded perfectly. Instead, just use gathered snippets of information using simple keyboard shortcuts or custom abbreviations. You can capture the important pieces of your emails, directions, messages, and data as snippets so you never have to retype them again. From correcting your personal typos and defining industry terms to whole email templates, reusing your info has never been faster and it works everywhere you type. Text Expander is available for Mac, Windows, iPhone, and iPad, and now Chrome too. Listeners can get 20% off their first year by visiting textexpander.com podcast. How cool would it be to grow your practice in your chosen area of law without spending time or money on business development? Now you can with ARAG. ARAG is a leader in legal insurance, and it works a lot like medical insurance. When you become a provider on the ARAG network, you consult with and represent clients for various legal issues, from writing a will to dealing with bankruptcy or divorce. ARAG does the rest, seriously. They'll connect you with new clients, they'll pay you directly, they'll even collect client feedback and share it with you so you can keep growing your business. Visit araglegal.com slash lawyerist, that's A-R-A-G legal.com slash lawyerist, to join the network for no fee and start growing your practice. And it is all about the growth. In fact, more than 90% of ARAG members say they are more likely to consult with an attorney when something goes up than if they didn't have legal insurance. 
Check it out at araglegal.com slash lawyerist. That's A-R-A-G legal.com slash lawyerist. Support for today's episode comes from Ruby Receptionists, helping legal professionals like you deliver legendary service and grow your practice with live receptionist and chat services. At a fraction of the cost of a full-time hire, Ruby's live U.S.-based team greets your clients personally when they call or visit your website. Ruby can route calls to you or connect chats to call based on your customized directions. Your live receptionist can collect new client intake, answer frequently asked questions, and make follow-up calls. Ruby streamlines billing with call tracking and Clio Rocket Matter and Clio Grow integrations. Ruby can send messages to you via the mobile app, email, or text, and much more, helping you grow your firm. Thousands of solo and small firm attorneys across the country rely on Ruby to turn callers and website visitors into clients. And now you can try Ruby for free. Call 844-715-7829 today or visit callruby.com slash lawyeristpodcast to get started with your 14-day free trial. That's 844-715-7829 or callruby.com slash lawyeristpodcast. Okay, we're back. So we introduced Chesterton's Fence, which you've kind of summed up in the sense of be humble. You know, approach, and in a way, I think this means approaching legal problems or any problems like a designer would, where you don't presume to understand it until you've done your research into it. Yeah, and I think the the thing that's interesting is that it's often positing the existence of a pre-designed system. Mm -hmm. So it's not just that you have to understand your user's need and address it, but you need to understand what user needs were being addressed by the prior design. And this is sort of easiest to see when you come upon a system that has uh, design components that are not really called into question by the existence of a new technology or rather are just sort of part of a process or a procedure. So actually, there are the court systems that, for the most part, are a really good case of that when we're talking about sort of rules of evidence, for example. When it gets tricky is when technology introduces a new ability that didn't exist at the time of the original design. And then what you've got to do is ask not just, you know, why is it this way? Because maybe the the way it's this way is because there wasn't the possibility for, you know, if we talk about sort of like Uber and Lyft, there wasn't the possibility for people just to call cars with their phones. So this, you know, massive regulatory apparatus and, you know, taxi medallions was created as a way to, you know, help control that. But now we can just have people on our phone calling cars. Well, the question is, is there a reason why someone might want to keep that regulatory framework in place even well, in well, Let's light? tee this up. So let's talk about open data. Yeah like public access to court records. And this is something that I've talked about a few times before. There are all kinds of reasons why open data would be a good thing. It opens the door to innovation. It drops barriers to public access who should have a right to get information and stuff. But what we haven't really talked about before is what might happen if you actually do take down the barrier, if PACER wasn't so difficult to access and didn't cost money, or if state court records weren't hidden behind archival walls and things like that. So keep going. Well, so it's interesting because you do have some, this is one of the, you know, the, the laboratories of democracy and all the, the 50 states and multiple other uh, legal jurisdictions in the U.S. Are, are sort of interesting to see how they deal with this because you mm -hmm. do have different jurisdictions in the state court context dealing with this differently. So you have some places like Florida where they just effectively, although it still comes down sort of county by county, um, but you have some counties that basically sort of throw their entire docket up online, including just about everything. Right. So sometimes there's like a, a nominal attempt to sort of maybe not show names of parties. Um, but sometimes there, it's just everything up there. And that, that creates a bunch of unintended consequences because there was traditionally a barrier to in aggregate getting all that information and, and getting it easily. And uh, that barrier prevented certain abuses. So the one that uh, that sort of most people really uh, resonates with them are sort of tenants uh, being blackballed by 
potential landlords because they've had some matter against a prior landlord. So the idea that, you know, you're unlucky enough to get someone who's not doing their job as a landlord. And so you have to get to the point where you take some legal action. And now because of that, you're never going to be able to rent again. Right. It's something that people really don't like. Um, but that's the sort of abuse. Well, and, that, and another example of it is, uh, you know, re- redaction of things like social security numbers. If yeah. you have to go into the basement and copy a piece of paper to get security numbers, it's it's not as big of a deal if people are doing what they're supposed to be doing to properly redact documents. But lawyers are terrible at redacting PDFs properly. And so PACER records, for example, have been shown to be rife with private data that shouldn't be in them. But it is. There it is. Just ask Manafort's lawyers yes. how hard it is to redact things. <laughs> so yeah, so that, and that's another potential problem there. And then, of course, then you have a lot of legislatures trying to be very thoughtful about access to criminal records. And doing things like banning the box on job applications or limiting who has access to criminal records, um, allowing people to expunge their records after a certain amount of time. But all of that gets short-circuited if someone can just go in and hoover up today's docket information from the court and put it in a database and then sell that back out to folks. Um, and so it means you, you really can't ever uh, have uh, moved past you know, that point in your life. So it's a bit of a tangent, but are there good examples of opening up public records? So this is, this is actually interesting because I, I, I didn't preview this bit for you, but I think I actually have some good solutions to this. And this is probably going to be the topic of a paper coming up. Oh, cool. And um, the notion is that the benefits that we, we want to see from public open records sort of come in sort of two classes. One sort of at the particular individual case, which is that, you know, you have a need to find out more about a particular case. So, you know, you're doing a, you're an investigative journalist and you're researching your particular company and its practices and you want to see what's going on. So you want to see their their litigation history. Or in the aggregate, you're looking at something that's going on in an industry or in the court system in general, and you're trying to look at some trend. So maybe you're looking for disparate impact um, against some protected classes. And you just want to know, like, what are the statistics of individuals from this protected class and the sentences they get? Something like that. So you sort of have these sort of statistical questions sort of in the population level and these very particular questions. And the particular questions are not, that's very well addressed now by most court systems. You can walk into the court clerk, you can get the file, you can get the information you need for a particular case quite easily. And in fact, there are often, um, in the average jurisdiction, a little different about how they in- interpret uh, their own rules around that. But for the most part, they're public records, and you can just walk in and, and request them. The question comes when you get to the move to the aggregate, should I just be able to go in and say, show me all the records for all time? Um, and then let me just dive in through the data and find patterns there. Because that then opens up the, all these prior abuses we were talking about. Because right. that accessibility in the aggregate, that becomes the, the difficulty. You can now blackball an entire set of folks. And so what I think would be a really responsible way to deal with this is to do something. I'm still trying to play with the name. I've been talking with some individuals over at the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative um, about this, oddly enough. And there's sort of the, the idea of how can you share the data in a way that will make it useful for sort of statistical inquiry, um, but without opening up all of these can of worms of actually getting people's particularized information. I can see why Facebook would be interested in that. <laughs> yeah, although Chan Zuckerberg, to, to be fair, is, is separate from Facebook. It just happens that the money can. They, they, uh, let's, the they might place. share some interests. Let's just be clear. <laughs> Now, they have, a, they have a large criminal justice group there that's working on helping improve the criminal justice system. And they've been working a lot with some of the progressive DAs that have been elected recently uh, around the country to help them get a handle on their, their data situation. And the thing that people often say is they say, oh, well, we want to do transparency. We want to just open everything up. 
and as a former public defender, that makes me a little anxious when the thing you're talking about opening everything up is everyone's criminal records, basically, because you do have these protections. And we do, uh, you know, and this is codified in, in law in a lot of places where we want people to be able to move past you know, once you've paid your debt to society, we want you to be able to move past that. And so a lot of people talk about, well, maybe the technical solution is just to anonymize the data somehow. And and that becomes very problematic because there's a lot of research that says that you can very easily de-anonymize that data. Right? So if I know someone's gender, their zip code, and their age, I can probably tell you who they are mm-hmm. right? uh, with just other, you know, records that I can, can access quite easily. So uh, anonymization isn't quite the right answer because it's hard to do that properly. And you don't want to just give out aggregate reports about data because then you have to identify what all the possible relevant aggregate reports are. So it's nice to do reporting and say, you know, these are the percentages here, these are the percentages there. And in fact, actually, there was a criminal justice reform bill here in Massachusetts, um, which recently uh, mandated some of this aggregate reporting um, in regards to racial disparities in sentencing. But it, you might actually have much more particular questions you'd want to ask than just Tell me the number of people who this or that happened to. And so the idea is to take the data, the real data, and basically to obfuscate it in some way. So that could be just sort of a, if you imagine it as a giant table in Excel, mm-hmm. every row is an entry in the, in the database. You could just imagine sort of shifting all the, for each column, just randomizing the rows, that you break that connection between someone's birthday and their zip code, et cetera, or figuring out what the ranges are in those columns, and then basically republishing the data, but now in a way that it doesn't actually contain any information. So what you've done is you have basically, you've published the Excel spreadsheet, as it were. Hopefully, it's not going to be published just in Excel spreadsheet, but you, you publish the information, as it were. But it it's actually doesn't have any real content in relationship to real things, except for you now you can see like the range of outcomes and you can see the, uh, the, the the possible different options for a value. Now, of course, before this, you do have to scrub things like social security number, um, personal identifying information um, that's, you know, entirely unique to an individual. Um, so those, so those let me fields stop would you have there. to share. Yeah. Because it sounds <laughs> like you've you've got a solution to this and it's super interesting. <laughs> but I want to bring us back to Chesterton's fence. Ah, uh, yes, to Chesterton's fence. <laughs> and so we talked about, you know, thinking about opening up court data in the sense of like, that is where there is a fence and it's not clear why there's a fence there. But now that we're thinking about taking it down, what might happen? You know, like it turns out that because there was a fence there, somebody started grazing their cattle on the land. And if we remove the fence now, then they're going to run rampant and that's a problem. And it's a similar issue with respect to court data. Before we started talking, you mentioned one that I hadn't even thought about, which was lie detectors are actually a bit of a Chesterton's fence problem. Yeah, that, that's an interesting one because a lot most people, I think, assume uh, to the extent that they know that lie detectors are not admissible. Uh, as evidence, they assume that's because they're really bad at telling whether or not someone lies. Um, And so you sort of see this betrayed all the time by people doing additional work on new lie detection technology. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there seems to be this notion like, oh, if we could just get a lie detector that worked, then that would be good enough to, you know, have it introduced in court. At least I think that's sort of like the implicit assumption most people have. Wait, so are you saying they do work? No, I'm not saying they work, but I'm saying the reason they're excluded from evidence is not because they do or don't work. Um, Although I suppose you could make an argument that they don't. But uh, I think most of the arguments have been around the fact that they usurp the fact-finding mission of the jury. So um, they basically sort of replace the juror's judgment and don't allow them to do that final fact-finding. Uh-huh. Makes sense, right? If somebody has said this person is lying or not, then the trier of fact is pointless. 
Yeah, exactly. So why, why do you need a jury? So they usurp that mm-hmm. that power. So I, I think the stronger uh, rationale for the exclusion. Hmm. Very interesting. Which means that when you have this new lie detector and it says that it works, then it starts to bring up all these interesting questions like, okay, well, now do we want to admit it? Well, wait a second. It's not because it was bad that we weren't admitting it, although they are horribly bad and actually predicting when people lie. But let's assume that we had a, a lie detector that worked. Well, now the question is, do we really want to tear down that fence? Because juries are not just about fact-finding. They are about fact-finding, but they're about community accepting the outcome of a court case. Mm-hmm. They're about you know, establishing the validity and uh, valid nature of uh, the execution of justice. And you know, without involving a jury of your peers, is our court system really the thing that we think it is? Right. In a way, the jury stands for the possibility that there's more to resolving cases than justice, or at least that justice is more than did this person do it or not. Guilt and innocence are just one component of it, which sounds a little bit similar to another issue that you raised, which is risk assessment tools, like, say, finding out the probability that somebody is going to recidivate. Yeah. So this is one that you know has, has showed up, at least in the popular press, more and more. ProPublica had a piece a couple of years ago that really sort of blew up, um, looking at some of the risk assessment tools that were being used in sort of pre-trial detention. And there the idea is, could these things appropriately predict whether or not someone would return for the next court date? Because we're talking, again, pre-trial. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, this gets all completed in very interesting ways in, in the sort of uh, popular press, because I don't think most people understand that the rationale behind bail is returning to court, not whether or not you're going to commit another crime or if it's, you know, all, all sorts Fair of things. Fair enough, yep. But to the extent that you can not conflate those issues, if we just talk about how it's just meant to be a tool to help determine whether or not the person's going to return to court, it's not clear that that's necessarily the, the criteria that you want to use. You might want to be fair about that. And what I mean is, and this has to do with sort of issues of algorithmic fairness, it may be that historically speaking, uh, there might be disparities in whether or not someone gets picked up, say, for a new offense based upon their race, not actually based upon whether or not they commit a new crime. Hmm. To the extent that you create a model that's based upon historic data, if that data itself is flawed and has bias, and you can be baking that bias in. I mean, that makes a ton of sense. You can't just plug a machine in and, and ask it to describe things because it lacks this kind of cultural social awareness that is also relevant. Yeah, or another way of putting it is it will only optimize for those things that you tell it to optimize for. Yeah. So if you say, figure out whether or not this person is likely to show up, and it can produce a, a prediction as to whether or not this or maybe not show up for court because really it usually ends up being about recidivism. So it's, it's tell me if this person is going to get picked up uh, on another offense. Well, the likelihood they might be picked up on another offense is not just a question of whether or not they're likely to commit an offense. It's whether or not they're going to be, you know, whether or not there are cops in their neighborhood. Uh, you know, I'm always reminded of this great image from Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow, where she points out that police could have decided to prosecute the drug war by, you know, breaking up coke and ecstasy parties at, you know, the lacrosse team in the suburbs. Right. Or riding up and down the elevators in your favorite skyscraper <laughs> in downtown. <laughs> yeah, but they, they, they never, you know, repelled off of helicopters into, you know, these suburban uh, parties, you know, when, when mom and dad are away. And so uh, a lot of this has to do with historical patterns of policing and, and, and a bunch of things that are bigger than just do we see them in this particular number? Because that number that you're measuring might not actually measure the whole story. Now, it's not to say that people are going to get it right. In fact, people have their own biases and make their own mistakes. The point is that we should be very careful, I think, this goes back to the Chesterton Spence notion, of replacing flawed human decision makers 
with differently flawed algorithmic decision makers. Especially if we can't really tell how they're making their decisions. Yeah. I mean, that you can go back and forth on that one because people you can't really, and you can <laughs> ask them and they can tell you what, they, what they think. But the point is, it really just goes back to being humble and back to this notion of you have to understand why the thing that's there is there. And then I'm always reminded of a, a wonderful, if we're just sort of like on the quote wagon today, a great quote from the statistician George Box, which says, all models are wrong, but some models are useful. Mm-hmm. He was talking about statistical models, but you know, this is generalized. But you think about a map, a map is a model of the world. It's not perfect. It doesn't tell you uh, every nook and cranny. So it's wrong, but it's useful because it's going to help you get from one place to another. So whenever we're talking about taking down a fence or using a model, the thing I always like to say is, well, we know that this model is, is not 100% right. So it should start the conversation, not end the conversation. So let's, let's have it start the conversation. And then you always have to ask compared to what, right? So we're mm-hmm. talking about, is this useful? You have to ask compared to what? And sometimes you're comparing it to nothing. So it's a really easy bar to clear. But you have to you have to ask, are, are we doing harm or are we doing good? And, and a lot of times, you know, the sort of work fast and break thing is really just about let's move ahead and, and see where things settle. And that's fine when the stakes are low. But when the stakes are high, it just requires a little more thought. You know, we started out by talking about this in the sense of sort of big changes, you know, big changes at the level of trying to solve the access to justice problem or things like that and legal startups. But it strikes me that this also has some real implications for more mundane questions like why the hell doesn't my law practice management software do the things that I want it to do? Everything that's designed is designed with some intention behind it. And this is something I encounter all the time where we get impatient with our products and our software and things like that. And I find it is beneficial to, before I start blowing things up, to try and figure out why was it designed to do things in this way. And that might reveal something to me about how this software wants to be used or the intention behind it, which may or may not be right, but it can help me in figuring out how I want to design my systems and my processes around the tools that I've chosen to use. I mean, consumers are going to be demanding without worrying too much about why something was designed the way it was. But when you're talking about how to design your business or your practice or how to use your tools, I think Chesterton's Fence has a lot of important lessons there for us for how we approach those problems as well. Yeah. I mean, the contract drafting is a, a wonderful example of this, right? Sure. So, you know, why is that clause there? Well, that clause is there because something happened at some point in the history of the, that drafter uh, who, who thought that was reasonable to be there. So, you know, is that still something we should be thinking about? But yeah, you have to understand the state of play before you move forward and and change things, or at least if you want to be responsible about it. Yeah, that's a really good point. I, you know, because it's always been done this way is a super uncompelling argument, but you can assume from the fact that it's always been done this way that there was a reason and it probably wasn't just like, eh, because I like that language, although it could have been. And yeah, before you decide to simplify a 19 page contract into one page, which is always my instinct, it's pretty important to understand why it might have been 19 pages in the first place. So yeah, makes sense. But again, not an excuse to not do that work. <laughs> no, not an excuse at all. In fact, it's, you know, it's just, you, it makes everyone have to do the work. So that you, it's not an excuse just to say, this is the way we did it. You have to, I think it's probably incumbent upon the person who's saying that to sort of justify why it is that they, they did that. Um, but yeah, it's just, you have to put the work in. There's just no way around that. Here's my question for you, because I see this a lot. I think you and I are the type of people who see a problem want to understand it, and then want to improve on it. A lot of people either don't see problems or see a problem, begin to understand that it's complicated and give up, 
or just figure that there was a good reason in the first place and don't act on it. How do you think someone can work on changing their mindset from being a as someone who just accepts the status quo to somebody who looks at things and fixes them, or is that just something innate in people like you and me? Oh, that's a, that's a big one. Uh, okay, well, I'm gonna have it's to okay think if you don't have an answer. But it's, it's like you know, I, I I watch people struggle with this. You know, they click the same button 15 times rather than just figure out a way not to click that button 15 times and just to click it once. You know, like I see people struggle with these little things over and over and over again that range from just everyday little things to. <laughs> I, I always hate to portray my wife in any way negative on the podcast, but she was asking for some help organizing files the other night and she has a folder and it only has one folder in it that has everything else in it. And so that there's one extra step she has to go through every single time. And there's no reason for that folder to be there. And I'm like, why do you waste these clicks every time when you could just move everything out of this folder into the parent folder? And it had never occurred to her to do that. And it's, it's just a small example of like people who don't fix problems. You know, my suspicion is that it, it might in part be about like a permission structure to think about it. Mm. Just because my my sort of working theory now for a lot of when I, when I see people not making decisions that, that I would make, one, I have to ask, well, maybe they have a better reason for doing it than me. But um, sometimes I think people are just, you know, they're they're operating from a place of scarcity, right? Their, their time is scarce. Their ability to think about things is scarce. It's often, I mean, it's, it's much easier to just sort of, as you say, sort of go with the flow. And, there, and there's often value in that because there is presumably the, uh, you know, sort of uh, accumulated wisdom of those who came before. Mm-hmm. I think in order to sort of question things, you have to be in a space where you feel uh, free enough to exert some of that effort, because I think it is effortful. I mean, I find a lot of joy in following my curiosity, but uh, that doesn't happen on nights when I'm tired, you know, days when I'm tired or, yeah, um, point. or you know, right at the end of the semester when I'm doing a, a, a hundred different things. Although sometimes I get distracted by things because I'm procrastinating. But maybe the answer is to somehow relieve some of that sort of cognitive load so that you you have the ability to, to ask those questions. And so I, I know you guys at Lawyers, you're always talking about how you go and you, you do your, your reviews of your policies and stuff. You have very regular built-in times where uh, you're reassessing the way you're doing things. So I think just making the space for that is probably the, the first step. And that's, you know, based upon the fact I was ambushed with this question. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm not asking you completely at random, though, because like one of the things I have noticed about people with scientific backgrounds, and maybe this comes from the scientific training where um, nothing is true unless it can be replicated, basically. But I have noticed about people with scientific backgrounds that the moment there's a big news report that comes out about whatever in the universe or discoveries or whatever, the people that I know who are scientific will often sit down with their calculators and try and replicate those calculations or <laughs> go and dig into Wolfram Alpha for the kinds of data that they need to see if they can understand why it was calculated in that way. And I love that. It's like the, it seems to be that kind of curiosity about, huh, can I understand that, that I think we could all benefit from doing more of. So I don't, I'm not totally asking you at random because you have that background yeah. and I've noticed you doing those things. And there, I think a lot of that probably is just the, it is the tendency to question received wisdom and to, to, you know, say, you know, prove it. I can't remember the motto of the, uh, the Royal Institute, the, uh, one of the, the science institutes that, that Newton belonged to. The Latin translation is something like uh, truth, not by uh, man, but by argument or something. That's mm-hmm. really bad. 
uh, translation, <laughs> but um, and I'm, I'm now going to have to go find that. I'm, I'm 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 tempted to just Google it here for the for the, for the listeners. Um, but the, I mean that's that's really central to the the idea of science is that claims are justified based upon their arguments, um, not upon who's making the argument. And that's very common, something you find in law too. It's funny you bring this up though because. I was thinking about this uh, today before our call. I was thinking about how sort of both sort of physics and the law are full of people who are sure that they understand everything and can figure out any problem. And that that actually sort of is the antithesis of of people who are are using Chesterton's defense. It's the idea of like, oh, I'm a smart person. I can figure this out. And that often gets us in a lot of trouble. Unless you actually put in the effort to figure it out. Yeah, unless you've actually put in the effort. So I guess it's this sort of two sides of the same coin there. Mm -hmm. There's a confidence to try to figure it out. And then the question is whether or not you then actually do the work that you really need to do to figure it out. And both of those, I think, come from come from a place of privilege, right? The notion that, yeah, I'm, I can take the time to figure out whether or not this is right because I don't have to be doing X, Y, and Z. Um, or, you know, it's not going to cause a problem for me. No one's going to question my ability to do this. And, and one thing privilege does give you is space to, to think about these things. So maybe that does come back to how do you get people. Yeah, your first impulse was ownership, right? Yeah. But I think it's also competence. You know, the idea that I feel competent to address this problem and I'm someone who can take responsibility for it. Those seem like they go hand in hand. Yeah. Like I don't necessarily see a big math problem and think that I am competent to replicate that solution. I don't know that I can solve it. And maybe that's similar when somebody looks at a technology problem and thinks about it that way. If they don't think of themselves as a tech savvy person, then they may not think that this is a problem that I have ownership over or that I'm competent to solve. And I guess what we're saying is, newsflash, maybe you are. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, we, we deal with experts all the time and we help help them explain things to us so we can explain them to a jury. Mm-hmm. Um, you have the tools you need to figure out problems. The, the truth is that, yeah, you're not going to know everything from, oh, well, this is, this is interesting because this is something that comes up with my students all the time when, they're, when we teach them a little programming. I think most people think that uh, computer programmers have all of a computer language memorized, like someone might memorize French, right? But the amount of times that you go back and look at your old code and cut and paste or um, you go to Stack Overflow and see how someone does something. I mean, it's, it's a crutch to rely on that too much. But uh, the truth is you don't memorize it in, in the same way. You always have to... What you Wait, do so that's normal? Learn to code. Yeah, that's normal. God, I thought, that was, <laughs> I, thought I was just an idiot. <laughs> that's, well, and, that's, and that's the realization that a lot of people have when they're doing that. You mean, wait, no, this is, this is how I do this? I mean, there are, there are programmers who've been working in the you know, same language for decades, and they always have to you know, look mm-hmm. up how to, the syntax for a particular thing. And well, that's it's because kind of a relief they, to hear that. <laughs> yeah, well, well, that's because they've they've made a, an important distinction between sort of the memorization of something and the ownership of that knowledge. Right? They know how to find the answer, and they know how to find that answer in a way that's going to get them the right answer. But it doesn't have to hit upon their cognitive load. I guess that describes law too. Yeah, right? it, exactly. You know where to find information, so it's a, that's transferable to other domains. And when you recognize that, then you can be curious about things because. You now it's not so overwhelming. You don't have to understand everything. Now you have to be dangerous. It's dangerous here to think that you're gonna, uh, you know, I mean, this, this is the tension, right? You have to understand the rationale. But the point is, it's freeing to know that you can ask someone or do research. You know, I, I don't want people to go off and, uh, you sure. know, uh, try to disprove the moon landings because they can find stuff on um, <laughs> on Google. You know, that that's the danger, right? That's the second side. And I did happen to Google the Royal Society's motto, <laughs> and uh, excellent. It's uh, roughly translate to take nobody's word for it. Gotcha. 
I like that. Well, I think that's a nice place to end, David. Thank you so much. If I can wrap us up for listeners, it is be humble when you approach problems and try to understand them before you try to fix them. And don't take anybody's word for anything, says Sir Isaac Newton. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Make sure to catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast app. And please leave a rating to help other people find our show. You can find the notes for today's episode on lawyerist.com slash podcast. The Lawyerist Podcast is produced with help from Lindsay Calhoun and edited by Paul Fisher. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you. Mm-hmm.